It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So... Here we are again. That was a quiet weekend, wasn't it? As we start another week in the exciting world of international politics, we have several questions to ponder. Why is Boris Johnson offloading the architects of vote leave from Downing Street? How will the departure of Dominic Cummings affect Brexit? Does Carrie Simmons have undue influence over government policy? Why is the Prime Minister holding face-to-face meetings when everyone else is being told to avoid them? And why on earth is he self-isolating for 14 days when he says there's nothing wrong with him? And finally... Could the business of running this country get any more bleeding ridiculous? We'll be asking Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party this morning, even as the European Union are making more and more noises about how Britain must agree to their terms on all sorts of areas of negotiations. 0344 499 Coming up later on in the show, we'll be seeking medical advice on the test and trace system. Boris Johnson claims his ping proves the system is working perfectly. Surely it's quite the reverse, isn't it? Forcing someone to self-isolate for two weeks who has already had the disease seems entirely over the top, does it not? And we'll be joined once again by Man on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens with his take on the latest shenanigans both inside and outside Downing Street. He started to call Boris Johnson the panic prime minister. We are, ladies and gentlemen, not yet halfway through this latest lockdown larceny, might I remind you. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be talking to Royal Watcher Angela Levin on the release of the new series of The Crown. Are Harry and Meghan going to have anything to say about their portrayal of his parents? Or will they stay silent and just pocket the cash. I think we all know the answer to that. And as ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you hearing and seeing out there? Are you following the rules like Boris Johnson? Do let us know. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, forgive me for being uh, slightly facetious here, but uh, I thought when I saw Dominic Cummings walking out of Downing Street with his big box uh, on Friday night, then emerging later uh, with a bottle of champagne and a see-through bag, that this was all some kind of uh, bizarre, kind of, you know, complicated pantomime, uh, all set up by Dominic Cummings to make it look as though he was leaving, but in fact he might turn up for work again on Monday morning. Then we hear the stories over the weekend uh, of Carrie Simmons having parties, uh, having great sort of uh, laughing sessions with Allegra Stratton, who apparently voted for Brexit and the Tory party for the last two elections, according to her. Um, we then discover that there's all sorts of things going on in government which are against the rules that we're all having to live by. Now, as a result of that, Boris Johnson is self-isolating uh, because he ran into Lee Anderson, an MP, who later tested positive for COVID-19. It really is quite remarkable. You really couldn't make this stuff up. Let's talk to Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party. Nigel, a very good morning to you on what is uh, a very bizarre uh, week in politics, isn't it? 
Oh, completely. Um, I mean, the one observation I've got, Mike, is that the Leavers are leaving Downing Street. Mm. I mean, Dominic Cummings is a very odd chap, uh, but he was bright enough to understand that leaving the European Union was about getting back control of our lives. He was bright enough to understand that millions of people had deserted the Labour Party, had voted UKIP, had voted Brexit, and that if he got the pitch right on Brexit, on immigration in the north of England, they would vote Conservative or at least lend their votes to the Conservative Party. Uh, and personal feelings aside, you know, he absolutely wanted to get a proper Brexit delivered because he knew that's the way they kept those voters for the next election. And to see him and Lee Kane walking out and you ask yourself, who's in charge? Well, Queen Carrie clearly is very influential. And Allegra Stratton, who on a personal level is delightful, uh, but used to work for the BBC, used to write for The Guardian. <laughs> and then you've got the Goves and people like that mm. on the edges, you know, advocating a much softer line on Brexit. And then you've got the fact that, and who knows what will happen with the recounts in Georgia and with the, you know, cases, the pending court cases on Dominion, this computer counting system in America. But it does look likely, doesn't it, that we're going to get a pro-Brussels, pro-Dublin president in the USA. Uh, and I just had this terrible sinking feeling over the weekend that Boris is very close to selling out on Brexit. Well, the one thing I think we have learned, Nigel, over the, the course of this pandemic, uh, if we didn't think it before, is that Boris Johnson will basically do whatever the last person he saw tells him to do. And he seems to have literally no principle of any kind and very little backbone. Well, he can't make decisions. I mean, twice over the years, I've been involved with Boris about doing events. And he's, yes, 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 yes. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, let me consult my people. Mm. Um, I remember once saying to him, what, so you're telling me you're going to ask the apparatchiks whether you can do this. You can't make your own mind up. And he pretty much agreed. Yeah. Uh, and, and so without that influence of Cummings and people like that, on this crucial phase in Brexit, it is Carrie Simmons and Allegra Stratton and Michael Gove who he's going to be listening to. And that's why I feel so pessimistic. Well, indeed. I mean, I was going to ask you about your dealings with Boris, because obviously in the lead up to the election, um, there were things that the Brexit Party did for the Tories, which were which enabled yeah. them to get quite a, a bit, as big a majority as they actually got. Did you find yourself dealing with him on that or dealing with others? No, I dealt with him previously, but I dealt with him during the referendum campaign itself. Mm. We spoke on a regular basis and, you know, agreed things like lines to take. And there was a good I mean, there was a good degree of cooperation with him, um, as I say, until it came to making real decisions. And he couldn't do those. He had to refer to Dominic Cummings in every single case. I didn't deal with him directly in the election last time round, but I did deal with his 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 right hand men. Um, and look. I didn't want, I did not want, particularly in the south and the southwest of England, the Brexit party vote to give the Lib Dems a big surge because it would have happened. And if we'd finished up in a situation of a second referendum, that would have been dreadful for the country. So I did give Boris the benefit of the doubt, although I didn't like the withdrawal agreement or the new European treaty. You know, he did make some pledges running up to the election that said he'd be tougher than that. I gave him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm just beginning to wonder why.
Yes, well, that's very true. We'll come back to some of his new policies as well in a moment on the green front. But what do you make of this rather bizarre situation which he now finds himself in, where he announces that, first of all, he has a meeting with Lee Anderson, uh, uh, one of the new Tory MPs from the North, (coughs) who he didn't have to have a face-to-face meeting with anyway. He's pictured with him standing without a mask on, right? He now says that uh, he got some form of uh, a ping from his uh, NHS app because he now finds out that Lee Anderson's positive for COVID. And he's now going to lock himself away for 40 days despite the fact that he's already had the disease so tens of millions of people all over the world have suffered from covid19 of those tens of millions there are literally a handful of people that have been reinfected so it is a a fraction of a small percentage point chance that in a short meeting he's contracted this virus again however it's all very easy to work out The swab test, the -the up-the-nose swab test, will, with certainty, two or three days after you've been in contact with somebody who's COVID-19, tell you whether you've got the virus or not, tell you whether you're carrying the virus or not. The idea that because he had a quick meeting last Thursday, that the prime minister of our country, during the greatest economic crisis in peacetime we've ever lived through, as the Brexit talks head towards this absolutely critical couple of weeks. The idea that he's going to self-isolate to the 26th of November just because he wants to show the country that we must all obey the rules, rules, incidentally, which change every couple of Mm. weeks anyway, is, I think, a complete abdication of responsibility. Matt Hancock keeps telling us about how marvellous the testing regime has become. So the answer this morning... The message that should go to Boris Johnson from this show this morning is very simple. Get a swab test this morning. When it confirms that you are negative, as it's almost certain to do, get back to work, meet Monsieur Barnier and get Brexit done. To cower in Downing Street until the 26th of November is an abdication of your responsibilities as prime minister. There is no earthly medical reason why you should do so. And I would absolutely endorse that message because, as you say, Nigel, surely the whole point of the testing regime is to get yeah. people back to normal life as, as best as possible so that they can prove that they don't have the disease because if that's not the reason for it, what is is the reason for taking a test to make yourself hide away? It's crazy. I mean, look, look at my situation, Mike. I'm now day 10 back from the United States of America, right? I'm t- day 10 in quarantine. Mm. And yet, I'll tell you something. I did leave home last week. I drove to London. Do you know why? I went to get the coronavirus To get a test. test. <laughs> I had, yeah, I had the test. It was negative. The clinician said, it's now been five days since you've been back from America. Mm. There is absolutely no chance that you will develop COVID-19. There is no chance that you've got it. I said, well, in these circumstances, does it mean I still have to stay in quarantine? She said, yes, the rules make no exception. Now, look, it doesn't matter for me so much. You know, I can work from home. The pubs are closed. There was nowhere to go anyway, really. But the prime minister, for goodness sake. I mean, one of the reasons that he claimed that he got the deal last October was that he met Varica, the Irish tea shop, face to face. Do you remember it was that meeting that suddenly seemed to change things? He needs to, and either Barnier needs to come to Downing Street or he needs to go to Brussels in the next few days to have this out face to face, 
to make it clear he's not going to back down on the promises that he made the British people. Uh, but apparently he's not prepared to do that. And I think it sends out a dreadful message. I think it is a total lack of leadership. Frankly, I think it's bordering on cowardice. Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of people would agree with that. And looking at what the uh, the noises are coming out of the EU right now, I mean, to be fair to them, uh, which I don't particularly like being, it turns out that they say, look, it doesn't matter who's doing the negotiation. It doesn't matter really who the advisers are. We're not really that interested in whether Cummings is there or not. But in the end, it's down to the prime minister. So even they're saying it's down to the prime minister. So whatever David Frost may say, and however pessimistic he may appear to be on Twitter, it's Boris Johnson's job to get this done. Yeah, it is. And you know something, I mean, you know, Zoom calls are fine. And, you know, here, here's you and I chatting on on Skype, Mike, and it's fine. But I tell you something, we would have a better interview if I was sitting next to you in the mm. studio. You know that, I know that, and the viewers and listeners know that. Mm. That's the way the world works. You know, he needs to sit down with Barnier, and whether it's over a cup of coffee or a glass of red, I don't really care. But there is something about human beings meeting, looking each other in the eye. That is how, in the world, deals get done. Well, I mean, my problem at the moment as well with Boris Johnson is I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure how this self-isolating in Downing Street thing works. I mean, is Carrie self-isolating with him? Will she have to self-isolate as a result of him uh, pinging? Because presumably she might have been quite near the meeting. I don't know. After last week, let's hope so. Well, absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons for his self-isolation. But let's talk as well no, about it, this green business. of the. Green... I hope they keep as far apart as possible for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, let's talk a little bit about this green thing as well, because, you know, I made a point on Friday that in the midst of all of this turmoil, with Dominic Cummings leaving, Lee Kane leaving, the one tweet that Boris puts out is about saving some far away part of the Pacific Ocean for some turtles and a few whales. And I'm thinking, is this really the most important thing you can think of tweeting at the moment? Well, look, why has he got an 80-seat majority? He's got it because he gave a robust message on Brexit, a robust message on immigration. I know we're not supposed to discuss that subject. It's all too awkward and very difficult, but actually it matters hugely Mm. to people out there in the country. Uh, And he said he'd fight for the little guy. Yeah, He said there'd be a levelling up that would go on in this country. All we have seen is a Conservative government, a chumocracy with their mates who work in big business, in lobbying companies, in parts of the media, dishing out contracts so far this year for one and a half billion pounds, contracts given out to their friends without any due process whatsoever. So they've maintained corporatism and not helping the little guy. And the idea that they're now going to go and do what David Cameron did to try and make the leader writers at The Guardian like them by talking about trans rights, by being as woke as possible, perhaps taking the knee to BLM and other Marxist organisations. And now to say we're going to have a taxpayer funded Green New Deal, which basically in the north of England will close down every chemical plant, every refinery, uh, take lots and lots of jobs away from heavy engineering and from business. This, Mr. Johnson, is not what people voted for. And if you think doing what David Cameron did, going down a line that is popular with the Notting Hill dinner party set is going to help you in in, 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 in the country, you've got completely the wrong thought process here. People want genuine, strong leadership. They want people to stand up for the country, stand up for Brexit, control our borders, and actually help 
the little guy. Help the six million people out there, men and women running their own businesses, acting as sole traders. Many of them have been thrown under the bus during the course of this pandemic. And that is the way that a conservative government keeps the blue collar vote, keeps the working class vote in the north of England. And he's running a mile from it. It is, I think, looking at what's happened over the last few days, uh, in my mind, it's the beginning of the end of Boris's premiership unless he changes tack very, very quickly. Well, look at all the big noises they're making about things like doing away with petrol and diesel cars in 2030. You know, that's only 10 years away. There will be people. It will come as a great surprise, as you say, to the Notting Hill set, that people, working people, ordinary people, actually might buy a van to, to do their business in, which they might actually keep for 10 to 12 years. They might not be renewing it every three years uh, like rich people in London do. They might actually <coughs> well, have a car for a long time. Well, actually, the rich people in London don't have cars anymore. They bicycle everywhere. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and which, which I've on, got on, on 4,000 pound bikes, right? Uh, but, but, but it is a classic London urban view of the world. Actually, out there in the, wheel, in the real world, people need cars to get their kids to school in many cases. Need cars, as you say, or vans to do their jobs. And when we get the government telling us, you know, that we're going to phase out motor cars, they'll all be electric by 2030, it's all going to be great. I cast my mind back just a few years to being told we should all buy diesel cars because that was better for the environment. And then, lo and behold, a few years later, they say, we got it all wrong. Look, no one is arguing that across the world, you know, dealing with problems like pollution are very real issues. And it's a huge problem. You know, with a Chinese population of 1.4 billion, an Indian population of over a billion, countries that are mining coal and burning coal at levels we can't even begin to understand. You know, whilst it matters, we are producing less than 2% of carbon dioxide in the world. And I, I'd like to see a slight change of emphasis. Rather than taxing, punishing, going for grand new schemes, why don't we start planting trees? Why don't we lead a global initiative to plant hundreds of billions, and I mean this, hundreds of billions of trees across the world to capture some CO2. Why not come up with some positives rather than these constant negatives? And they are negatives because if he goes on down this green route, I can see things like the fuel escalator being put back on petrol and diesel. And it's ordinary folk that pay the price. And it's companies, mostly foreign companies, subsidised to the hill by taxpayer money that benefits. Exactly right. And two weeks now to go after this Wednesday for this lockdown. If Boris Johnson hides out in Downing Street for most of that period, he's going to emerge presumably on the 2nd of December. We're told he wants everybody to have as normal a Christmas as possible. Um, But what happens in January? Well, if the logic is to protect the National Health Service and they're scared of a huge wave, they'll lock us down again in January. One figure to ponder. One figure to ponder. If you look at intensive care units in London, all right, they are, the numbers of people in those ICU beds are now 80% lower than they were at the end of May. I'm not underplaying the fact that this virus can be horrible and some people react very badly to it. I've got two cases, Mike, two cases in my own family of people that have had COVID and are suffering from the longer form of it. So I'm not laughing this off. 
I'm not pretending that it doesn't matter. But what I am saying is we have to get a sense of perspective. And when we're 80% lower in terms of ICU admissions, and yet we've cancelled routine operations, we're not screening people with type 1 diabetes, lung cancer diagnoses are down by 75%. The country is suffering, you know, from a wave of depression. Just, just look at people's faces out there. No one's smiling anymore. Uh, look at what's happening to debt. Look at the sheer number of people who will be unemployed very, very shortly. And that's why I've reached the conclusion that whilst we do have to be sensible, you know, hand washing, hygiene, I get all of these things. But we really are at a point now, I'm utterly convinced, where the cure is worse than the disease. And it's apparent the government have learned absolutely nothing after eight months of total incompetence. It's true. Nigel, thank you very much indeed. Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party, of course. We are live streaming right now on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. What do you make of what Nigel has to say? Why does Boris Johnson have to self-isolate for 14 days? Isn't that a bad example to the rest of us? Surely he should get a test. Surely he should be able uh, to then return to work, having tested negative five days after the supposed encounter with somebody who later on tested positive for COVID-19. This doesn't show that the track and testing and tracing system works. It shows that it's incompetent, doesn't it? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, here's where we are then. Um, If you want to buy a diesel car, you can. If you want to buy a diesel car in 10 years, you can't. Um, If you'd like to drive in that diesel car, you might have to pay road tax in order to do so. In fact, you almost certainly will have to pay road tax. You'll also have to pay fuel tax. Uh, You will also have to pay to park. Uh, You will also have to pay uh, if you want to go on any toll roads. Uh, And they're thinking of making more toll roads so that you have to pay even more money to go wherever you want to go. If you want to go into London, you pay a congestion charge. If you've got an old diesel car, you'll pay an extra charge on top of the diesel charge. Anybody would think, would they not, that somebody in government doesn't like people that drive cars. I wonder why. Let's talk to Howard Cox, co-founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Howard, very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. How are you? Yeah, well, I'm all right, but I'm feeling a bit like, you know, old Boris talks about having boxing gloves to bash coronavirus. If you're a motorist these days, you feel as if you've been in the ring with Mike Tyson. Every time you get up, somebody whacks you again uh, and tells you to pay some more money to them. Well, there are 37 million punk drunk people in this uh, country, 80 80% of the population, they are thoroughly sick to death of this. And, you know, here we go. I mean, it's inevitable it had to happen, but they created a noose for their own back, or is that a mixed metaphor? Rob for their own back, that's it. Um, You know, they've said they're going to, as you said, 10 years' time, we're going to get rid of diesel and petrol cars. They're going to buy them. Mm. Why do they have to do that? They don't need to do that sort of thing. So guess what? Oh, hang on a second. We're going to lose fuel duty, all 30 billion pounds of it yeah and the 50 billion altogether that comes from motors the fifth largest income to the treasury what are they thinking of again why are they doing this and now they're threatening us with yet again and it started in 2006 under alistair darling i remember that talking about road charging and there was actually a petition then of two million signed basically told gave two fingers up to the actual idea of doing it mm. so what's going on here yet again uh, ill thought out thinking and I bet you it's been uh, actually uh, uh, created by someone dressed in lycra. Uh, well I wouldn't be at all surprised I mean I've seen some uh, some stuff over the weekend you and I probably both uh, getting plenty of abuse from the cycling fraternity yeah. um, but many people now in the cycling world saying you know it's not about electric cars the government got this wrong we don't want any cars right no. forget about electric cars being the answer they literally don't want there to be any cars in any city in this country. 
They just want to turn the roads into their plaything, their playpen. That's what they want to do. And, you know, what we're looking at is that, you know, uh, if we do have this pay to drive, uh, you know, as we use the roads, that means it will bring EVs into the equation and it will bring in other road users, cyclists. Mm. How are they? They might be creating a real problem for themselves by supporting something like this, because it's only fair that anyone who used the roads should pay for them. Yeah. Exactly right. And of course, the argument we always get from them is that, oh, well, we do pay uh, for the roads because we pay taxes and some of us drive cars as well. Well, that's fine. But, you know, the bottom line for me is that you cannot tax people into oblivion. And sooner or later, I mean, somebody actually said to me, oh, the road tax goes into the general tax um, uh, bucket. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course it does. But that doesn't mean it should. The point about the road tax is it's supposed to be for the upkeep of the bleeding roads, right, which are in a pretty bad way. Well, that's right. I mean, there's no, no doubt about it. I mean, the pothole holes we've seen, and Mr. Pothole, you've had him on your show before. He's got a campaign going starting, in, I think, in January to fight them again. They are getting deeper and deeper. They're more cratered than ever. And guess what we're doing? We're spending another £175 million on blocking roads using uh, a thing called, what's it called? Uh, LTNs? or oh, you know, yeah. LTNs, yeah. Low or... Traffic Neighbourhoods, I think they call those, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And we've just launched today, and I'm asking all listeners here, please go to our website. You, We have created a, a, a way to actually email Grant Shapps to say, think again, this is wrong. Please go to fairfueluk.com. You just click on that, and it goes. you can send an email. We've created a nice templated letter, which you can edit. Even the cyclists, they can edit it too. Please, could you just contact them and say this madness, this anti-car, this war on motors? Craig McKinley, the MP for South Annette, who's chair of our APPG, said it is a war on the motors. Mm. And you've introduced your, your piece here today saying exactly the same thing. And what about those people who actually need to drive vehicles for their livelihoods? You know, we've heard uh, all the time, and I was talking to Nigel Farage earlier in the show, of, you know, people who have to buy a van, for example. And I just read a tweet out from a guy who wants to buy a second van for his business, but he would keep it for more than 10 years. You know, people don't buy a new car or a new van every two or three years. People invest in transport for the business that they need to run transport in, and they want to keep those vehicles for a very long time. How much is it going to put those people out of business if you start charging them for driving because that's what their job is? Well, these policies are devastating for small businessmen. And, you know, the window cleaners, the taxi drivers themselves, everyone wants to breathe clean air. Everyone mm. wants to have uh, clear roads. Everyone wants to do this. But no one's got joined up thinking, working how to do this. There's no need to put draconian targets or cliff edge targets. There's no need to put charges, more and more uh, uh, taxes on drivers. There's no need to actually make demonised drivers either. The simple fact is this. This is very interesting. A haulier you know, that does a million miles a year with all its fleet of vehicles, will not, in road charging terms, how will they actually make him pay so he's paying no more than he's doing now with fuel duty? Yeah, exactly and right. Yeah, and, 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 and an old age pensioner that does about 100 miles a month, how will they make that fair as well? It's it, it, No one's thinking yet again. That's right. And what about the jobs of the people that work in the car industry in this country? Because there may not be as many as there were, but there's still a sizable number. Absolutely. And they must be really upset with the fact their bosses are not fighting this. The bosses of these companies uh, are not standing up for the motorists. What they're doing is actually just kowtowing to this green wave of stupidity when at the moment most emissions are dropping and falling. In the last 10 years, hauliers uh, uh, moving to Euro 6 engines, uh, emissions have dropped by nearly 60%. 
but that's not a headline. Mm. No, let's let's talk about how uh, you know little juniors got get it coughing because of asthma because someone's driving past a house. It's that's being caused by lots of things, not just emissions. No, exactly right. I mean, it could well be that they've got a you know a wood burning stove inside their lovely uh, home, or perhaps an arga you know, that perhaps is damaging little Timmy's, uh, you know, breathing. And in fact, some of the, I've been told, some of the fumes that come off, um, you know, cooking you know, are actually worse for you than standing around in the street. Well, Nox is, that's great. So you boil an egg, uh, I think, if you boil it for an egg for about five minutes, you, you breathe in the, on a gas stove, that is, not electric. Yeah. On a gas stove, you breathe in something like the same amount of Nox you'd get by standing by the, a road for a half a day. Right. That's the sort of thing you're getting. And this is a big one, of course. If We, we, we can't use public transport, but when we did go on the underground, there's 3,000% more particulates down there than at roadside. Right. Again, and, you know, Sadiq Khan is bankrupting London, and telling us to use public transport. He can't at the moment, but the safest place to be is in the car, and yet that's the most expensive place to be. Yeah, I know. It really is quite extraordinary. Howard, I'm sure you and I will be talking quite a lot over the course of the next few <laughs> weeks and months. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Co-founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Go and check out their website and have a look uh, at the email that you can send to the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, because I think it is time that people started to question some of the motivation of all of this stuff, because looking behind the curtain, it's not about banning diesel cars or banning petrol cars or banning fossil fuels it's about banning cars altogether this is the end game that's what they want and that is what i will not allow them to do and i'm sure with your help we can in fact stop them 0344 499 1000 coming up in the next hour peter hitchens is going to join us he wrote another fabulous column in the mail on sunday in which he referred to the prime minister uh, as nothing more and nothing less than a panic merchant basically doing all sorts of things flailing about and of course he wrote that before he knew uh, that boris johnson had gone into self-isolation you can only imagine what mr hitchens is going to make of that a man who has got nothing wrong with him, who has already had a disease, which is more or less impossible to get more than once. He's not going to go into the office for 14 days. He says he's going to work from home. He says uh, he's as fit as a butcher's dog. He says there's nothing wrong with him. And he says that's the good news. This is Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? I'm reasonably well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, very well indeed. Enjoyed your column yesterday, which was written without the benefit of knowing uh, that the Prime Minister has decided to lock himself away uh, for two weeks. I would have been very keen to see what you would have written about that. Well, not all that much. It's all part of this strange religion which has so many people in its grip. And if you follow it, then then one of its beliefs has to be that if you're in contact with somebody who has... Uh, who has later on contracted or is alleged to have contracted is tested positive uh, for this mysterious disease uh, you must then isolate yourself that's the way it goes uh, there are all kinds of other peculiarities about it and as I say we have to treat it with respect among those who follow it but the rest of us uh, look on in wonder yes but I mean the thing that struck me about Boris Johnson's statement was that he was making out that this um, act of his proves that uh, uh, the test and trace system works terribly well, which I think is the complete opposite of what it proves. It proves how well, ridiculous it is. That depends what you think the purpose of the test and trace system is. I believe it's much like the muzzle decree, uh, which by compelling so many people to walk around with half their faces invisible, uh, p- creates a constant atmosphere of panic and worry that we are in the midst of a terrible scourge and the plague is about to get us. Mm. And the same goes for test and trace. What test and trace does is it discovers very large numbers of people who are not ill, uh, who nonetheless can be found to have traces of the the disease in their systems. And we've had for the first time, I think, in human history, a global panic uh, about a disease which in many, many cases has no symptoms at all. Mm. And they have to be searched for. The governments of the world are having to go out and search for people who've got the disease uh, so they can get more worried about it. This is the absurd situation we're in, just as we're in the equally absurd situation of, of what I'm absolutely sure are inflated statistics on the, the numbers of deaths really genuinely attributable to this disease. It is almost entirely a panic panicdemic uh, created, as I say, by, by government action and by the unque- unquestioning repetition of government propaganda by far too much of the media, which people then trustingly accept because we are a society based on trust and they can't conceive i don't think that the people in charge of government and the people in charge of organs like the bbc could be so dim uh, but there it is they are and it's time they learned it well you did say i think this weekend that it had 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 the media that we now have been around when watergate was happening watergate would never have been discovered i uh, no, and richard nixon would have retired with honor uh, and would, would 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 never have had to resign and many other things. Likewise, if in 2003 we had the media, the, 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 the supine media we have now, the fact that Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction would never have been found out. Uh, and all kinds of other very important criticisms of, uh, of governments would, would never have never broken surface because so much of the media now is full of people who seem to want to, to actually suck up to political parties and government and go and work for political parties and government. Uh, the whole point of becoming a journalist when I started was that, as uh, H.L. Mencken rightly said, the proper relationship between newspapers and government was that between a dog and a lamppost. 
and we were there to make trouble, yeah. not, to, not to suck up to them. But this is all gone now. Now, if you actually make trouble, your fellow journalists turn on you like the, the victims of, in, in, in the invasion of body snatchers and point at you and scream. Yeah. I mean, I'm like you, Peter. I, I can't ever un- uh, understand anyone wanting to go and work for the government if you're supposed to be a proper journalist, because not only um, are you betraying what it is that you're meant to be, you're also then thinking of yourself as one of them. And what do you do when you finish doing that? When you come out of having worked for the government, you can't possibly really be- pretend to be a journalist anymore. I don't think you can. I don't think there is any return for it. But it used to be the case that people would go from journalism and, and be uh, poachers turned gamekeepers. But it was permanent. Once you'd gone, you'd gone. Yeah. There was no going back. What happens now is that a lot of people, while continuing ostensibly to be journalists, having their bylines in newspapers as if they were independent people, have already sold their souls to a political party or a faction uh, in the hope of becoming eventually a part of government. They think it's the thing to do and the thing to be. I, I understand this. Uh, governments are handy things to work for. They pay you regularly. They give you great big fat pensions. And you can tell people what to do. But it's not the same as working for newspapers or indeed uh, working properly for a a broadcast news organisation either. No, but it's incredibly difficult now to see or read or hear things um, which are not in some way slanted. You know, I mean, I'd like to think, I mean, I'm sure there would be people that would say that my my own views are slanted in one particular way or another. But that's fine. I don't pretend not to have views. But what I do say is that I take everybody at face value. I do the same work I would do uh, on Boris Johnson as I would do on Keir Starmer. I mean, it makes no difference to me. I don't vote as a matter of principle because I don't think I should. Because if I did vote for a party, I would then be affiliated in some way with what they stood for. And I've never done that. I, I, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I, I resigned from the Labour Party back in the 1980s when I went to work as a political correspondent for the first time. I thought I really shouldn't belong to a party. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's it was fairly clear during what I was doing afterwards would have been sympathetic to Labour for some time, though less and less so. Uh, what I do now, though, is, is, is I'm quite open. I'd say these are my opinions. Anyone can find them. I don't make any pretense to be unbiased or, or or as the people demand objective though i'm i try to be as insistent as i can both on checkable facts reference where you can and also on pursuing the normal rules of, of reason and making arguments so you if you disagree with me you, you know why you disagree with me you can aim off the wind as it were when you read what i say or listen to what i say but that's uh that that seems to me to be fine what worries me is huge numbers of people pretending to be impartial and objective and appearing in newspapers and on broadcast channels while making this pretense, uh, and yet not being. And, and so people are fooled into thinking they, they, they're getting impartial information when, in fact, they're getting propaganda. Mm. And several things happened over the weekend. I noticed you commented on that situation up in Liverpool, which, which I think neither of us probably know the entire ins and outs of, of a guy who's apparently getting arrested for not moving along quickly enough. Now, I don't know if that's what he was getting arrested for, but it was certainly slightly worrying to see so many police officers apparently having to sort of uh, disarm one man who was unarmed. Well, I'm still waiting for, for information on exactly what happened. And I, I was careful not to come to any conclusions, except the one, which is that uh, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of police officers in mm. our country, despite this constant refrain. I went into this some years ago. We've got thousands more police than we used to have in the days when they did the job properly and patrolled on foot. Yeah. Uh, and this has always been a sort of trade union uh, lobby argument rather than an actual factual case. Uh, and they certainly had plenty for, for that event, whatever it was. But I, I still refrain from making any direct comment on it because I don't know 
what happened before or afterwards, or indeed how it might have looked from another angle. Mm. One has to be careful with these things. Yeah. I've, I've occasions on demonstrations recently, I, I won't go into them in detail. There's one in particular involving a woman who was uh, appeared to be being overthrown by the police, which, when examined, turned out to be not exactly as it appeared right. to be. Right. No, there's no question that there can be, uh, I mean, through the various prisms of social media, there can be conclusions drawn which should not be drawn. But no doubt, it is a very weird time in which we live. I was over in Borough Market last week, um, walking around. Like most of the uh, the shops and the and the, uh, the, the the food joints are open because they're selling food. Uh, some of it is, uh, some of them are selling takeaway booze as well. Um, and the police are walking around, uh, seeing loads and loads of people there, looking at them, not doing anything. So there's a kind of double standard going on, surely. Well, I suppose, I mean, one, one should be glad that the police are not being too officious. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm I not think, unhappy I, about I, that. I, I think, I, let's, let's say for certain, a lot of police officers are sensible about this. Uh, and, of course, they don't get filmed being sensible. And the, the, the remain in the police service, as we must now call it, quite a large number of men and women who are sane, reasonable, sensible, measured, are trying to police by consent. But there's also quite a large number, whether it's a majority or a minority, I cannot tell, uh, who regard themselves as being in a state militia whose job it is to get their way by threats and force. And they're completely different from the police that I grew up with, and they don't seem to me to be performing the same function. No, quite. Now that we are sort of approaching the third week, I suppose, of this lockdown, um, there was some hope, uh, some who hoped that uh, if the, the rate that they talk about was, re- was reducing sufficiently, it might be that they might relax some of these lockdown rules. Um, but it seems as though that's less likely now. And we're now going to wait until Boris Johnson's finished his self-isolation uh, before we all emerge, you know, like butterflies from the, from the, uh, from the cocoon on December the 2nd. Well, the problem, again, is that, uh, is that there remains this belief, actually in the heads of quite a lot of people who criticise the shutdown, that there is, there is some purpose in doing this thing, that there has ever been uh, any actual uh, proof that shutting down the country and strangling the economy and mucking up the NHS actually reduces or prevents the spread of the disease. Uh, I, I'm by no means sure that there is any proof of this, and I've yet to see any. Uh, and but as long as we continue, as I've said this from the start, to believe in this idea that you can actually control and suppress a virus by the actions of government, uh, then we're stuck with this forever. It's just that the last last week's jubilation over the vaccination. Well, okay, I, maybe it'll it, it'll work. Maybe it'll be fine. It seems a bit rapid to me. And if you look, as I was doing last night, at the history of the the polio vaccine in this country, the United States, you can see there are many pitfalls in rushing into the implementation of of a vaccine however well it seems to work to start with but leaving that aside uh, I don't think that even the introduction of of the vaccine even if they successfully manage to distribute it which this government is by no means guaranteed uh, even if all those things happen I still don't think we're going to be out of it Uh, because if if the vaccine is successfully developed for this uh, particular disease how long will it be before another disease emerges from some part of the world which is used as the pretext for another of these shutdowns. If we're going to react to every virus in the, that ever emerges in this way, then frankly, as an advanced industrial societies, we're doomed. We, can't, yeah. we will never get out of it. Uh, we have to recognise, and I keep on saying this, and we have to recognise now, we have to recognise during and after the public inquiry, this has all been a terrible mistake, which should never have happened, and it's not justified, and nothing about it is working. 
Well, just to, to help you out with a little bit of breaking news, apparently four other Conservative MPs uh, have now been ordered to self-isolate, having also been pinged from the same meeting that Lee Anderson had uh, with Boris Johnson. And you've been quite vocal before about the likes of Neil Ferguson and others who broke their own rules because clearly even they didn't believe them. I mean, what's the Prime Minister doing having meetings with groups of people when he's telling everybody else not to have meetings with groups of people? Well, presumably we'll have we'll have information about this when it comes as to how, how socially distanced they were and all the rest of it. I don't know. I, th- I wouldn't want to prejudge without without information. And it doesn't. I, my problem with Neil Ferguson was that it was his own rules he was right. breaking. I couldn't really get particularly censorious because they were rules which I thought were ludicrous in the first place. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. That what 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 he had done was evidence that he himself, uh, deep down inside, recognised that they were ludicrous too. Mm. In, in a way, for one brief moment, one brief shining moment, uh, Professor Ferguson and I were allies in, in, in joining together to say, these rules are ludicrous. No sane person can take them seriously. And then off he went again on the BBC saying they were sensible. And I stuck to my position. Yeah, well, he does keep popping up every now and again. with yeah, you, can't, you can't get rid of him. I mean, he, I mean, he keeps yeah, making... However many times he boobs, he and, still keeps Yeah, but, but, but I mean, a man, a more brazen character I don't think I've ever met in my life, because not only does he keep appearing, but he keeps making predictions which turn out not to be true. Well, there used to be an old saying in the Fleet Street of my youth, which was that nothing succeeds like failure, and I think it's <laughs> borne out many times in well, we both worked for many of those uh, those particular yeah. individuals, I think. But let's talk about uh, the economy, because um, uh, today in The Times we see Rishi Sunak's looking at the possibility of charging people for driving on the roads that they've already paid for. Um, I dare say we're going to see a lot of this manoeuvring from the Treasury over the next few weeks. Well, it's going to become more and more desperate. They, they keep avoiding the, the horrible moments, of which many of us, of course, when our finances go wrong, uh, avoid too, which is actually looking at the accounts and working out how much money we don't have and how much we owe. Uh, the, the quantities of, of debt are so colossal that no amount of taxation can set it right, uh, though on the other hand there will be great pressure to claw as much back as possible. I foresee all kinds of things, quite possibly a, a, a supposed uh, capital levy, a raid on people's savings in their pension funds and in their homes will have to come about. Uh, they have to tax practically everything from breathing upwards to try and begin to get the money back which they're spending now. And spending on what? Uh, spending on, on, on making us all bankrupt in the first place. The real problem is that after this is over, the tax base in this country will be so much smaller that those people who are paying tax will have to be squeezed even harder. Mm. And it will go on for decades so that everybody now in their 20s will be paying this off in their 50s. And also, and also will there not be a knock-on effect to the public sector? Because the public sector has grown beyond all measure uh, from when you and I first started out in this job. Um, and there's now hordes and hordes of people employed by the taxpayer, effectively. And if the tax base suddenly starts to diminish, then presumably so must the public sector. Well, this is the problem. I, again, in my final years, when I spent some time in the fi- final stages of the Soviet Union, uh, it still had officially uh, quite a, a, an effective public health service. Uh, but in fact, if you ever went into, you, you, none of us ever dared to be treated in them, but if you ever went in to look at the, the hospitals of the Soviet Health Service in the, the, the very end of the, 19, uh, of, the, of the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s, what you found was the buildings were there, but the terrible shortages of staff, shortages of things like uh, syringes, clean needles, antibiotics, anesthetics, uh, a lack of cleanliness. Although the thing still officially existed, uh, and no one had, had formally announced that it was over, 
uh, anybody who had either any sense or any money uh, didn't use it. And this, it seems to me, is a grave danger to the National Association. They can keep it going if they like, but if it isn't working, people will turn elsewhere who can. I've noticed around where I live, uh, private GP services are starting to pop up all over the place. Because people are, I mean, I'm quite lucky with my own GP service, but I hear of a lot of other people who are not. And people are getting sick of being made to stand around in car parks waiting for for, for off-hand treatment. And they are going to, if they can afford it, turn to private GPs. So that mm-hmm. takes support, political support, as well as uh, as well as morale, away from a service which also won't have any money. Except from the start, people and people are still accusing me of caring more about money than lives. I said, you cannot separate the economy from life. If the economy doesn't flourish, you can't maintain decent health services you just can't do it if you're worried about life you have to worry about the economy yeah and also we spent a great deal of time last week on this show talking to people who had relatives in care homes uh, and in sheltered accommodation who hadn't seen them since march believe it or not uh, one particular woman janet from newcastle uh, whose, whose whose father was not terribly old not terribly infirm had all of his faculties when he went into the care home uh, but took his own life as a result of being isolated for such a long period of time, which they didn't know anything about. And it really is an absolute scandal, which is just one of the many scandals uh, that I don't think people are highlighting enough. No, and it was one of those which the brilliant Professor Sutrid Bakhti at Mainz in Germany warned of from the very beginning. It was completely foreseeable. I think it's a, it's a, it's a lesson in any following any dogma. This, is, this whole COVID thing is a dogma. If your dogma leads you, a kind, decent, normal human being, to do hideous, inhuman, and cruel things, then the dogma is wrong. You should abandon it. Whenever anything leads you into doing things which you, which you can see from any instinct or moral feeling must be wrong, and the, the treatment of old people and the separation of the old from their, from their relatives has been indefensible, in my view, then the idea which lies behind it must be wrong, too. Well, exactly right. And you wonder when um, this government and Matt Hancock's been doing the rounds again this morning. He doesn't seem to be moving from the, the mantra that he, that he continually spouts that we follow the rules. We must follow the rules, even though the rules are in sometimes incomprehensible and in sometimes just completely confusing and contradictory. There doesn't seem to be any sign that the government is, is taking account of any of these things that people are saying to them. Well, the government has a tiger by the tail. It can't let go. Uh, it's it's completely lashed itself to this policy. Uh, if it at any stage began to admit it had been mistaken, then everything that it's done for the past six months, and that's a lot of things, uh, that, has, that has damaged the country, damaged its people, uh, led to unnecessary deaths, non-COVID unnecessary deaths uh, in, on a large scale, uh, crashed the economy uh, and destroyed uh, huge numbers of livelihoods and the happiness of millions. If, if, they, if, if they admit it, that this has all been the mistake it has been, then then they are obviously uh, finished. They have to cling to it, and they will cling to it. So the end. Of that's I one in a in a in my most generous moments. I feel sorry for them stuck there because sometime in the middle of the night it must come to them what they've done. Mm. Uh, but the only thing to do is to carry on criticizing them until they're driven from office and until they're so excoriated uh, by uh, by a public inquiry which says how how hopeless and useless and damaging they've been. That they retire for the rest of their lives to Trappist monasteries, having given all their goods to the poor. Mm. I mean, is there any chance? Which is the best fate I can think of for them. Yeah, absolutely right. Where they could join the other people who belong there, of course, are Blair and Alistair Campbell and all the people who got us into the Iraq War. And the, the 
Trappist monastery may be too good for that. Well, I found that one, one of the more uh, ironic episodes of the weekend was when Alistair Campbell was being interviewed by somebody uh, and declaring that uh, Dominic Cummings saw himself as more of a celebrity than an advisor <laughs> while giving the interview, uh, no, no <laughs> less. I mean, quite remarkable. But, I mean, is there any chance... Alistair's self-knowledge is boundless, <laughs> isn't it? Is there any chance that this kind of pantomime that we've been witnessing over the course of the last few days, you know, the parties, the, you know, Lake Stratton goes in, suddenly, you know, the vote leave people are kicked out. Suddenly we're supposed to be believing that there might be a kinder, gentler administration about to emerge. No, I, I, I did read to my alarm that Dylan the dog might well have been expelled from Downing Street at one point, but apparently he's, he's, he's been saved. No, this is all nonsense. This is, this is all um, special advisors dancing on the head of a pin stuff. Mm. It's not real politics. It's, it's the soap opera to which political journalism has been reduced because so few political reporters are interested in politics, understand it or realise what's going on. Look at the amount of time devoted to this as opposed to the amount of time which should have been devoted to examining the government's policy properly. And you'll see what the priority of these people is. They're basically their exalted gossip columns, mm. uh, and, uh, and politics is show business for ugly people. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Peter, a good way to end this, uh, the conversation this week. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you at the same time next week. Peter Hitchens uh, from the Mail on Sunday there. Uh, I think giving the lie uh, to the fact that this is in fact all real, that it's all happening, that it's going to change anything. I think he's absolutely right. I don't see a kinder, gentler Boris Johnson emerging uh, from this entire episode. He's now self-isolating for two weeks, as are now another four Tory MPs. So that's six people that we know of in this meeting. Let's hope there weren't any more than that, because that would be breaking the rules, wouldn't it? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say time now to uh, welcome Angela Levin to the show. Angela, how the devil are you? I'm very well, thank you. Listen, I have great, uh, I have, I have even more admiration for you now than I had before, witnessing as I did the appalling uh, sort of torrent, torrent of abuse you were suffering yesterday, which was why I originally kind of joined in, and then I started getting it as well. Yes, well, actually, I have a way of turning all that off, so I don't get to see it. Oh, okay, you That's mute the words that. or something like that. Yeah, I did think there about doing that at some point. Do that. Yes, but here's yeah. the thing, right? I put out um, uh, what I thought was a fairly reasonable question on top of the piece uh, in the mail, which was all about this Netflix deal that Harry and Meghan have got, which supposedly yeah. is going to make them hundreds of millions of pounds because they're going to do a sort of, you know, fly on the wall documentary, a sort of reality TV show. They're going to be doing other things as well. But The Crown, which is Netflix's kind of jewel, if you like, um, has now embarked upon the next stage of, of the royal family story, which, which of course involves Harry's uh, parents, Charles and Diana. And, you know, it doesn't exactly paint them in what you might say is a very flattering light. Mm. Well, it's quite interesting because I, like you, wasn't the least bit interested in watching The Crown. But when I went to interview Prince Harris, ha- Harry at um, Kensington Palace, the first question he asked me is, are you watching The Crown? Really? And I sort of mumbled and said, no, I wasn't on Netflix. <laughs> I said, are you? Are the rest of the royal family? And he said, yes, we're all absolutely watching everything. But I'm going to insist it stops before it reaches me. Oh, really? He's now actually doing what I think is so disloyal and rude, and that is taking money from a company like Netflix that knows exactly that it's going to get its pint of blood out of somebody Mm. when they offer a lot of money, when he knows the same company 
is ridiculing his father, his mother, and his grandfather. Yeah, and, um, and how, how long ago? How long ago was that, Angela? You spoke to him. Um, it was on the second instalment, so a couple of years ago. Okay, so quite recently, really, because you know yeah, that, yeah. that's not long ago enough for me for somebody to have suddenly completely changed his view. Um, because of course, some of the people um, who were criticizing you and I for even talking about this was saying it's got nothing to do with him you know what his father did before he was born is none of his business well I'm sorry I don't think that's true you know if your father is not only the heir to the throne uh, but was also uh, being portrayed in a television series by a company who you have signed a contract with um, and, and, and being treated in a very derogatory way I think you'd have something to say about it. Yes, I think so, particularly his mother. I mean, he still claims he hasn't come over his mother. And who can you when you've got such an amazing woman like Diana? Yeah. She was obviously quite an extraordinary young woman. And yet he's going to be involved in something that is taking the mickey. I mean, last night we saw her dressed up like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah. by William Shakespeare, hiding behind little bushes yeah. in, in Orthorpe House. I mean, it was so patronising, it was so awful, it's not how they met, it's completely wrong. Mm. And it just diminishes her before you even got going. Well, exactly right. Also, having never watched it before, um, I put it on last night and started watching it, thinking I was watching uh, Series 4, and I thought, this is a bit uh, historic. I wonder when it's going to sort of jump forward. Then realised I'd been watching the first ever series, which was, of course, how uh, Prince, <laughs> Prince Philip and, and the Queen met and how he, was, he sort of became her husband and all that. They but, could just watch it all in. Yeah, yeah. so then I, t- I finally got it right, got onto the right episode. But I just thought the whole tone of it was very kind of snotty and looking at all of these people who are all, who look at them all, they're all sort of horribly upper crust. They're all horribly out of touch. I mean, they they depicted Mountbatten as some ghastly philanderer, right? Um, almost made the uh, uh, the blowing up of the boat on which his grandson was also killed a perfectly uh, risable and reasonable act by the IRA. Yeah. I think the whole thing is spiteful, and a sort of grotesque cartoon-like, yeah. where they take the exaggerated part of somebody that is very negative, and they don't try even try to balance it out and make it positive or make it more realistic. Mm. I thought they were all. I thought uh, the Queen was presented as dull and you know, sort of neurotic, which she's not. I thought Diana looked dreadful i thought it's a very good performance but it's all performance i thought it was unkind to prince charles i spent a year with him um before his 70th birthday and you couldn't meet a more devoted man to this country and i think you have to think that the royal family is very precious to us um most of us are very grateful to them right. and to ridicule them in that ruthless way I think is appalling and I think that Harry I don't suppose Meghan minds it's not her family and she was very unhappy here but I think Harry has got to stop to be a willing hostage and stand up for himself and say um, I do not want my family uh, treated like this and I'm not going to join in if they're going to do that I can't see Netflix just taking things about unconscious bias and making series of them I think they'll want the depths of of Harry and Meghan's despair and to pull all that out again, I just think, you know, it's just not right. 
No. I mean, certainly, you know, they have the right to do it. And, you know, we live in a free society and you're perfectly, you know, entitled, if you wish, um, to do a kind of, you know, what they call a docudrama about things. But they've admitted, haven't they, Netflix, that many of the situations that they portrayed never happened. They've admitted that there's quite a lot of fiction in there. Um, And you would have thought, I mean, if it was my parents that they were doing it about, they would be hearing from me, regardless of who I was, whether I was in the public eye or not. And I just think it puts Harry in a really, really bad light if he says nothing about it. I think also those those sort of docudramas, you don't know what's true and what isn't true. Right. So you can end up getting it wrong both ways. I think if it's historic, it doesn't matter quite so much. But when it's a lot of living people and it's very modern, yeah. it does matter, actually. Well, and I, I think, think so. the wrong thing to have this um, vomit shown, you know, because of bulimia, mm. which... Um, uh, you know, they, they're going to show with warning signs there because that is the real truth of bulimia. And I don't wish to see that. It would turn my stomach. Why should I? I sympathise it enormously. I've interviewed loads of people with eating disorders. It's a terrible tragedy for them. But I think when you then fill it as well with nonsense and made-up stuff, we don't quite know where we are, and I don't like that. No, I'm sure they'll they'll cover it up with that usual kind of wokeness where they do at the end of soap operas in this country. But you know, if you're having trouble with an eating disorder, please ring this <laughs> yeah, number. You know, as if that as if that kind of ameliorates it all and it makes it all fine. You know, it's nonsensical. <laughs> the other thing that I noticed that happened over the weekend is that Harry rang up um, and spoke to one of his former sort of colleagues on Strictly. Uh, which everybody declared was the first time they'd actually seen him sitting on his own. They wondered if Megan had suddenly gone out for uh, you know, a packet of fags or something, so he was able to make a quick call to one of his old mates. Well, I think this was wrong too, because he's the guy who's gone on and on and on, you know, from when I first interviewed him all the way through. He wants a private life, he wants a private life. So why would he do this as a great big publicity shot? Mm. He could have rung his pal up and said good luck and not gone on. But it's very interesting because it was the first time he was out, with, he was out there without Megan. Yeah. And I think he didn't have to worry that he had to say what she wanted him to say because it's just congratulating a pal who she obviously didn't know. And he could relax a bit. It wasn't about climate change. He wasn't lecturing. He was just saying, well done you. Mm. But I, I don't think you've got to have everything online if you're the most private person in this world. <laughs> you uh, really don't. You do, no, you're you absolutely go- right. And he could, have made the, he could have made the call and without having to publicise it, right? Yes. Just as he could have delivered the um, Remembrance Day um, wreath without having that done as, right. a, as a publicist. That was dreadful, wasn't it? I mean, to, to use, and I've spoken about this before last week, but to use a cemetery, and not just as any old cemetery, but a cemetery of the war dead, the fallen, the honoured dead, to use that as a backdrop, it's, it's unforgivable. Yes, I think this was one-upmanship on the on the royal family, though, yeah. but it just doesn't work. No, it really doesn't. And I see from the weekend's um, um, dispatches that they've also hired a new PR some woman yeah. from Silicon Valley. Um, another, uh, she, another she, went inst- she went to school, uh, to university with Megan. Yeah. So they have known each other a while. But, you know, they've now got 12 PR people. Obviously, something's wrong. That PR people aren't getting it right or they're not getting them on, on social media enough. But these are the people who don't want, they want a quiet life. They want a quiet, normal life. I think it, they, they realise they've got it wrong because they're going down with all the, you know, do you like Harry and Meghan? But I think it's because they lack common sense. Mm. I know you're a great man for common sense. I am, I am. They lock 
they lose it because they don't think broadly. They don't think, well, someone will be hurt. Have I got to do this before I tell other people what to do? I don't think they like that. So they could have 50 people who are trying to get them on every channel around the world. But if you haven't got common sense, you're not going to do the right things in the right way. No. And looking at the people they have hired, the two PR sort of uh, top bods, one comes from Pinterest, um, which is one of those uh, social media uh, outfits that I don't really understand what it is that they do. Uh, And also uh, the other one comes from Deluxe, a video creation and distribution company. So I think we know where their areas of expertise are going to be. (laughs) <laughs> yes, uh, but I just think you can have loads of people telling you, but if you haven't got a gut instinct, you're at a huge disadvantage, and I think that's a problem. And I also think Megan's is based on one-upmanship and winning and jealousy of other people having something, and she has to triumph over that. She's got many talents. She's a very bright woman. She speaks well, but she she's she's got um, a... a a wish for for being the number one in every possible area. And she messes up because she doesn't understand the rest of us and what we think. I mean, she's got her gang of um, people who think she's wonderful, but I think they're getting smaller and smaller and younger and younger. Yes, and I see that there's... I won't do well for saying all this, I know, but that's what <laughs> I think. No, listen, I, you've got absolutely every right to say it. And also, more than most of the people that are criticising you, you have actually met Prince Harry and you've interviewed yes. him. And so you know how he thinks or how he used to think, yes. you know, before yes. he was uh, he was becoming the, the new Prince Harry, whatever it is. I'm told Pinterest is a social media platform where you create mood boards. So that's uh, that's all right then, isn't it? I can create one maybe for them. I'll give them a mood of mine. But um, uh, also, the other thing is, I hear they were talking to Joe Biden. Um, and wouldn't it be, and somebody said to me on Twitter, wouldn't it be ironic? Um, because you could imagine them doing this just because they'd fancy it. Uh, if he made uh, Meghan and Harry the ambassadors, uh, the US ambassadors to the Court of St. James in London. Yes, that would be hilarious. That would I be. I don't think- I don't think Meghan would dare come back to London because they'd have to bring Archie and they want to keep him well away from London. Do they? Well, they seem to want to keep him well away from everyone. He doesn't have any friends, the poor little guy. Yeah, well, we that. don't know that. We don't know what goes up in that enormous house. So let's stick to what we know and what we can see. But, you know, it's just um, they're making all sorts of excuses not to come to share Christmas with the Queen. They don't yeah. have to come afterwards. Um I think she feels that if she's there, the atmosphere will be so terrible that she wouldn't be able to take it. No, of course. And we await, of course, the uh, re uh, uh, the re sort of uh, reunion with her father, who she still has not seen and who has still never met his grandson. Yes. Meanwhile, she's been preaching about we must all be much kinder to everybody. Yes. This is one example. It was Kindness Week last week, I think. Oh, was it? And she said everybody's got by that one. Much- and and she's not kind at all to him. She's really not. Well, I mean, that message is clearly not working to her followers on uh, social media, who are all pretty uh, rude, it would seem to me. Yes, but I think that, you know, he's not been the ideal father, but he's not been so terrible that she should never speak to him again. And poor man, I mean, he's waiting. Mm. He's not well, he's got heart problems, and he's waiting to come over here and have his say. But it seems that they're trying to stop him from having his say, whereas Megan really wants to have her say, and that's imbalanced too. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Well, no doubt, Angela, we will speak again on these matters because uh, they're not going away. Angela Levin, royal biographer there, uh, telling us what Harry once said to her in Kensington Palace just a couple of years ago, I'll make sure that they stop 
with the crown before they get to me. Really? Well, now they're at your mother. So what are you going to do now? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.